So the, the, your article uh, is searching for privacy in the Internet of Bodies. What I wanted to epitomize with the Internet of Bodies is this notion that we will be under assessment, we will be under measure of computation in every aspect of our lives in the future, from what you eat, who you date, what you buy on the Internet, um, how much energy you use, but also what are your vital signs? How well are you doing in terms of health? Uh, what kind of specific genetic quirks do you have? What's your genome telling about your health, about your mental health, mm -hmm. about how well you are doing, how well you are aging, what kind of disease you are sus susceptible to? That means that in the future, potentially states, nation states, potentially rising tech platforms, very powerful tech platforms, will have access to our most intimate data, what define us and what shape our lives, our future, our aging process. Remembering in the Internet of Things, we're <laughs> things too. Think about an individual that you might see on the street. What you see is an individual's face, their features, what we would call their phenotype. That's very different than being able to look and peer into their body and understand the molecules that make up their life. We will peer into those molecules, and not just at one point in time, but over long periods of time. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. Free will, that's over. That's over. Today, we have the technology to hack human beings on a massive scale. Yeah, I mean, everything is being digitalized. Everything is being monitored. In this time of crisis, you have to follow science. It's often said that you should never allow a good crisis to go to waste because a crisis is an opportunity to also do re good reforms that in normal times people will never agree to. But in a crisis, you see we have no chance, so, 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 so let's do it. Vaccine won't help us go the to the test, The vaccine will <laughs> help us, of course. It will make things you know, more manageable. Surveillance. People could look back in a hundred years and identify the coronavirus epidemic as the moment when a new regime of surveillance took over, especially surveillance under the skin, which I think is maybe the most important development of the 21st century, is this ability to hack human beings, to go under the skin, collect biometric data, analyze it, and understand people better than they understand themselves. The end of our foundation is the knowledge of causes, and secret motions of things, and the enlarging of the bounds of human empire, to the effecting of all things possible.
1626, Francis Bacon penned these words in his famous work, The New Atlantis, which is widely regarded as instrumental in the creation of the Royal Society and an inspiration to the scientific revolution in general. The foundation being referred to is the foundation of Solomon's House, as explained by the head of this institution, known as the father of Solomon's House. And what exactly is Solomon's House, you ask? Well, in essence, this whole story is about a secret society of elite scientists and academics and thinkers who've lived for centuries on an island unknown to the rest of the world called Ben Salem, whereby the secret society has amassed a vast assortment of technological and scientific knowledge from every corner of the world and continually sends out undercover agents to procure knowledge from unsuspecting kingdoms and, and occasionally share knowledge uh, with whatever nations they see fit. It tells the story of these seafarers who get blown off course on their voyage in the Pacific, uh, sailing from Peru, and a storm blows them north somewhere, and uh, they land on this island, and, uh, you know, it's it's this ut it's a utopian uh, novel, more like a short story, but, you know, it's a depiction of this, this perfect uh, society that's unknown to the rest of the world, where this uh, science-based oligarchical civilization basically rules the world in secret. And uh, it's a fascinating read, to be sure. It's not even terribly long if you're interested in, in perusing it yourself. But yeah, it's, it's a utopian vision of a science-based society run by a priesthood of technocratic elites. And while it, it understandably garners comparisons to other utopian novels written in that era, but none of them have such prominence as being heralded with directly providing the the impetus for the creation of the first scientific society in actual real-world history. And for those of you who are inclined to go into a deeper dive on the topic of uh, Francis Bacon and the New Atlantis and Rosicrucianism and so on, uh, there's a couple of very interesting lectures that uh, famed occultist Manly P. Hall uh, did back when he was alive, and he talks about it in quite a bit of depth. <laughs> And from his perspective, doesn't seem to leave you with too much doubt that Bacon was a proponent of Rosicrucianism. And he explores the whole question of whether or not this book, The New Atlantis, which followed the Rosicrucian manifestos that were published only a handful of years before this, but he explores this, this question of whether or not this was actually intended as a, as a recruiting tool, you know, for a society that was already in existence and was already hiding and, you know, seeking members, but if they didn't want to be found, you weren't going to find them unless they wanted you to find them. And it gets into all sorts of interesting little side questions about certain ciphers, about there was a certain seal in, in a few of the copies of this, the original copies of this book that corresponded to ciphers and hidden messages and things like that. And, you know, there's a real substantial rabbit hole that you can go down, but my focus here today is not in trying to prove that the New Atlantis was, in fact, some sort of recruitment text for an underground Rosicrucian order, although I think that's worth exploring. But I wanted to talk about it because it's amazing how you don't even need to go down any of those deep rabbit holes to simply assess the message of the book on any allegorical level and then hold it up to the standard of scripture to see if it can be reconciled with the gospel or not. And this allegory, I think, is is worth examining, uh, essentially because it's, it's, as I began to read it and think about it, it's almost the same, you know, archetypal construct of science, capital S, science, that so many people hold on to, you know, and 
essentially, in, in many ways, or at least are trying to get other people to believe in. And it, it's this underlying belief in a, you know, a college, quote-unquote, this sort of elevated separate society of scientific elites who are leading, you know, the rest of the world on their path towards enlightenment, or... In other words, it is the gospel of, of humanism and in the natural and transhumanism. So the fact that Sir Francis Bacon is so often referred to and quoted by so many Christians today in their zeal to, you know, defend the compatibility of science and the Bible is certainly not to be forgotten either because, uh, yeah, again, this is of notable relevance to the current time and state of things. And I'm sure many of you have heard pastors and creationists and, and many folks out there quoting and referring to Bacon as, as one of the premier examples in history of a renowned scientist who was also a Christian, you know, and that's about as far as they go. And indeed, all you have to do is really look at this book by itself and notice that there, there are some real problematic things that pop up uh, pretty quickly. It would be a difficult thing to explain from a truly Christian worldview. Now, near the end of the New Atlantis, as this leader of the secret society called Solomon's House is explaining the various operations of their vast hidden empire, he explains, We have also, as you must think, novices and apprentices, that the succession of the former employed men do not fail, besides a great number of servants and attendants, men and women. And this we do also. We have consultations. Which of the inventions and experiences which we have discovered shall be published, and which not? and take all an oath of secrecy, for the concealing of those which we think fit to keep secret, though some of those we do reveal sometimes to the state and some not. For our ordinances and rites we have two very long and fair galleries. In one of these we place patterns and samples of all manner of the most rare and excellent inventions, in the other we place the statues of all principal inventors. There we have the statue of your Columbus, that discovered the West Indies, also the inventor of ships, your monk that was the inventor of ordnance and of gunpowder, the inventor of music, the inventor of letters, the inventor of printing, the inventor of observations of astronomy, the inventor of works in metal, the inventor of glass, the inventor of the silk of the worm, the inventor of wine, the inventor of corn and bread, sugars, and all these by more certain tradition than you have. Then have we diverse inventors of our own, of excellent work, which since you have not seen, it were too long to make description of them, and besides, in the right understanding of those descriptions, you might easily err. For upon every invention of value we erect a statue to the inventor, and give him a liberal and honorable reward. These statues are some of brass, some of marble and touchstone, some of cedar and other special woods, gilt and adorned, some of iron, some of silver, some of gold. And then right after that paragraph he says, We have certain hymns and services which we say daily, of Lord and thanks to God for his marvelous works, and forms of prayers, imploring his aid and blessing in the illumination of our labors, and the turning of them into good and holy uses. So essentially, he's talking about how they have these giant temples erected full of statues to all the, the famous scientists and everything. Which is really curious if you remember that he's hailed as a Christian science, you know, writer and thinker at the onset of the Protestant Reformation. And this is no doubt a very uh, curious utopian vision for somebody who's supposedly part of this historic movement away from the Vatican and the papacy and the idolatry of all the statues and temples erected to uh, saints and, and Mary and elevate the clergy to this untouchable status and, and all the rest. So yeah, the, the Vatican's not biblical, but when it comes to science and inventors and this whole utopian vision of a science-based society. Oh yeah, that's totally compatible with, with God's design and, and intention. 
right? So essentially, what I'm hoping to convey is that it's a humanistic message, it's a Gnostic message that is claiming to be under the guise of a coherent Christian biblical worldview, but it is not. And you can get into other parts of the story where it actually, there's one part where it explains how Christianity supposedly came to Ben Salem, like in the first century, like right after Jesus ascended and there was some giant glowing cross out on the ocean and they went out on their boats and the head guy went out and there was like a box floating in the water that had a, a letter from Saint, I think it was Bartholomew or something, and a copy of the, of the Old and New Testament and, and other books as well it, it mentioned. So, you know, some Gnostic gospels in there or whatever, but so yeah, it's this whole nonsense story of a quote-unquote Christian island secret society nation that uh, that somehow is... I mean, the fact that this has been around for, uh, you know, almost 400 years, and it essentially is like this Renaissance-era description of what we now today call the military-industrial complex. And that term itself, compared to what it encompassed in the 1950s when Dwight Eisenhower first introduced it to the public, compared to now, uh, of course, has already expanded exponentially since right after World War II. You know, when there was no big tech industry or digital currencies and cybersecurity and all this. And so, in the attempt to now bring this out of the 1600s and into the current present day, uh, I wanted to play a short clip from the recent episode of Revelations Radio News podcast. My homies Tim and Andrew are talking about the Substack article describing this new societal kind of tension between the virtuals and the physicals. And hopefully you'll see why this all starts to tie together. And as a quick side note, if you aren't listening to Revelations Radio News, you are missing out, and I highly recommend it. I never miss one, and I, it's one of the highlights of my week. So here's Andrew quoting a little bit from this article, followed by a pretty fantastic little rant by uh, Tim. We've, we already referenced No Agenda once, but Adam Curry referred to a Substack article about the virtuals and the, uh, the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Physicals? For sure. Yeah. So that is uh, from N.S. Lyons... And it's the upheaval, the upheaval.substack.com. And it's reality honks back about those truckers. So that's the substack that he was referring to. Uh, it is worth reading. I actually already had it in the, already had it in the show notes, and then it gets brought up on no agenda. But it happens um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. So the he says, I also quoted a passage from the late Christopher Lash's book, The Revolt of the Elites. That is worth repeating here. The thinking classes are fatally removed from the physical side of life. Their only relation to productive labor is that of consumers. They have no experience of making anything substantial or enduring. They live in a world of abstractions and images, a simulated world that consists of computerized models of reality, hyper-reality as it's been called, as distinguished from the palatable, immediate physical reality inhabited by ordinary men and women. Their belief in social construction of reality, the central dogma of postmodernist thought, reflects the experience of living in an artificial environment from which everything that resists human control, unavoidably everything familiar and reassuring as well, has been rigorously excluded. Control has become their obsession. In their drive to insulate themselves against risk and contingency, against the unpredictable hazards that afflict human life, the thinking classes have seceded not just from the common world around them but from reality itself all right Oof. so read reading my former city's mail i mean 
That is... Yeah. Oh, Andrew, I can't tell you, man. I cannot... <clears throat> listeners, everybody listen. I mean, I was selling Range Rovers to software techies. That was, mm-hmm. that was my job. And I, I, I was even close personal friends with some of these software techies. And insulating themselves from the hazards of the real world is about the most spot-on... I mean, my wife and I have had numerous conversations about these people, and many of them were our friends. And what COVID did was push the people who were leaning this way, way far that way. Right. Yeah. I identified early. and It, in, in it gave them an excuse, you know. Yeah. It, it was yeah. no longer like a, a taboo thing to stay in, inside all the time and spend and, all your life on your computer. It was like, oh, that's virtuous now. And it's elite. It's, it's crazy. This, is, this will sound weird. I don't mean like elite as in like the so-called global elite, but I mean, it's elitist. Like it's this weird elitist, like I'm better than everybody. I'm smarter than everybody. Call the plumber to do the plumbing work and all that hands-on labor. I, I wield the... I make software. I'm changing the world. I make... 200 grand a year. Mm-hmm. I live in Seattle. My house is only 1,800 square feet, but it's worth $2 million. Uh, I, I order Uber Eats. I have my new cars delivered to my house. I will not let my kids out of my house until they have the vaccine. It's it, hyper control over your environment, and it's extremely unhealthy. It's sad, extremely unhealthy. This is a kind of a godless, elitist worldly thing like hey we're america we're awesome or actually we suck whatever it is right now i don't know the flavor (laughs) (laughs) but we're but we make we make we make software we're magic you know we we get paid lots of money we're we're, the world runs on this people wish they could live in seattle and wish and and i'm gonna order all my i don't know but it's godlessness man it's godlessness it's humanism with godlessness so i thought that was great and particularly Tim's uh, <laughs> just personal experience. And, you know, I, I definitely resonated with and, and it kind of gave me flashbacks of so many moments of frustration and consternation that I've felt over the past two years and having interacted with various friends and family who, may, you know, maybe maybe not to that extreme of, of working as a software techie themselves, but just in the general overall cultural, you know, islands that, that they seem to be in where they were very much, yeah, oblivious to how the the various measures and mandates were affecting uh, what some might call the quote-unquote physicals. It, it definitely rings true that, like, to the folks that were just able to work from home and didn't really impact their bottom line or didn't cause them to lose their job, yeah, there was definitely, there was, there was a wall of talking to people, just trying to get them to understand how all these executive orders and mandates and arbitrary declarations coming down from the the experts, the priesthood, you know, the, the scientific oligarchy, whatever. It is a type of elitism, and it's a godless humanism, and I think that might be one of the scariest aspects of everything that I've, you know, seen over the, the past two years. Specifically when it came to people who call themselves Christians and uh, profess faith in Christ in the Bible and are part of a church and all sorts of things, but then being faced with an, an unquestionable narrative coming down from on high and being so blinded by confidence in you know, technological progress and just the inherent goodness of the people behind these new technological uh, products and measures that are indeed completely godless, but they refused 
to look at it that way. They refused to think that what could be going on might be contrary to God's design and God's God's call for how we're we're, we're supposed to live. And yeah, it's been it's been frustrating and it's it's been very sad at times. And uh, so yeah, I really enjoyed that. I mean, the, the Uber Eats, all of it. It's just. And, and that whole thing of, yeah, sitting in your home and just having everything delivered to you and having a million, you know, channels that you could live stream and all the information comes to you and you work from home and you're just, you know, protected from everything in the outside world and all you really care about is if everything inside those four walls is, is okay, then that's what matters, right? And it just so perfectly ties into this next clip that I want to play. Uh, this is going back now to... I think this was made in the 70s from Francis Schaeffer's film series called How Should We Then Live? And this is from episode 9. I'm just going to play part of it, not the whole episode, but from the series How Should We Then Live? Which was, of course, based on, on the book and lecture series he had. But again, tell me if this doesn't exactly tie into kind of what's at the core of what we're talking about in terms of humanism. And specifically in this episode, he's talking about humanism as it ties into the two core values of personal peace and affluence. Modern man's humanistic thought has come down in many, many forms until at a certain point of history, now I would put it in the early 1960s, people heard this same message coming at them from absolutely every side, whether they read the book of philosophy or they went into the art museum or they listened to music or they read a modern novel or they went to the philosophic cinema. It was always the same. And that is uh, that, on the humanistic basis, reason leads to despair, uh, to no answers. And people should try to find answers in the area of non-reason. It had brought people to the place where there were no fixed values whatsoever. These were completely gone. And the great majority of people had come to the place where they had only two horrendous values, absolutely horrible values, personal peace, and affluence. Now, because I'm going to use these terms over and over again in this episode, let me define them carefully, and I'd urge you, please listen with care. As I use the term personal peace, I mean I want to be left alone. And I don't care what happens to the man across the street or across the world. I want my own lifestyle to be undisturbed, regardless of what it will mean even to my own children and grandchildren. Now that's what I mean by personal peace. Affluence means things, 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 always more things, and success seen as an abundance of things. Marxist-Leninism is a leap. It's a leap for another reason, or even a more basic one than the one I've given. Its found foundation, its philosophy, is materialism. Now, all through this series, we've shown that humanism, man beginning from himself, cannot generate any real values or meaning or any real dignity to man. And here is a system that is built completely and consciously and totally on materialism. There is no place for the dignity of man in the materialistic system. So-called communism with a human face that some of the thinkers in communist-controlled countries have pled for, and some outside of communist-controlled countries have also pled for. It isn't possible. It just isn't possible on the basis of materialism.
And yet, strangely enough, the young people and older ones in non-communist countries are caught by the idealistic Marxian-Leninism. And it was my conviction after examining the different <clears throat> trends in parties and so forth that the Communist Party um, most held to those ideals. And was the reason is, is that there's so much talk of dignity. Dignity of man, it'd be treated better. In order to solve those problems and in order to give life uh, a meaningful and purposeful life to young people. Where does this come from on a materialistic base? It doesn't. Do you want to know what it is? I'll tell you. And there's only one way to understand idealistic utopian Marxianism, and that is that it's a Christian heresy. And in struggling against and condemning that which is wrong in the world, and Lord knows there's enough of what's wrong in the world. Idealistic utopian communism simply reaches over, takes these words, which could never be produced out of materialistic philosophy, brings them back, uses them, separated from the natural results of their own position, and in doing so, catches these uh, who are caught by idealistic Marxian-Leninism. But when Marxian-Leninism comes to power, it's a different story. It's always oppression, and the will of the majority suddenly has no meaning. Not only does the dignity of the individual cease to exist, but the will of the majority has no meaning either. Now we must understand there are two streams of Leninism, Marxism. They must be kept separate, and we must see these two streams clearly. The first is the idealistic utopian stream. These usually young people, though sometimes older, who have leapt into the area of non-reason uh, to accept Marxian Leninism. That's one stream. The second stream is the hardcore orthodox communist party members in various countries outside of the communist uh, bloc. Now, we find that the danger is that people who have only the two values of personal peace and affluency, if they seem to be promised peace and affluency by communism, nobody knows what great majorities of these people will do. Nobody knows. More than that, we must see there's a danger in that these two streams of the idealistic Marxian-Leninism and the hardcore Marxian-Leninism Orthodox Party could flow together in a country at a given moment of history and create a situation that would be forever irreversible. And that is a very real danger. This type of danger is uh, before the United States just as well. The United States has also its marks very much upon it, and no more so in any area than in the area of the generation of arbitrary law. I want to talk about arbitrary law at some length, actually. Man demanded to be autonomous from God and God's revelation. And what this has re resulted in is relativity, not only in personal and public morals, but in law as law. The nature which men try to build their law on, as we remember back in one of the previous episodes, just is not sufficient for the simple reason that nature is both cruel and non-cruel, and as such you cannot build a stable system of law on nature. And what we're left with, uh, with the, in the humanist flow today in the United States, is purely variable sociological law.
Now, by sociological, what I mean is law uh, that is merely based on what some group decides is good for society at a given moment. The man who opened the door for this, perhaps more than anyone else, was Oliver Wendell Holmes. And he wrote in a letter, I'll quote him exactly, the ultimate question is what do the dominant forces of the community want? And do they want it hard enough to disregard whatever inhibitions stand in the way? This was Oliver Wendell Holmes quite a few years ago. And really what it amounts to is purely variable law. Much modern law is not consistent with the law that has preceded it. And as a matter of fact, we must say that the Constitution of the United States today can be made to say almost anything on the basis of sociological variable law. Now, we must understand that a law today is not just variable law, but that the courts are actually making law. They're not only interpreting the law that the legislative has made, but they actually generate law. Now, Everybody knows who knows anything at all about these things that arbitrary law dominates completely in communistic countries. But what most people don't realize is that on the humanist flow, arbitrary law has swept over into the Western world as well. Okay, so there's a lot I could uh, get caught up in there. Because there was so much, I tried to keep it short, but I thought all those parts were good and pertinent. One of the, the big things that stuck out to me was where he says, you want to know what idealistic utopian Marxism really is, uh, is that it's a Christian heresy. And of course, Francis Schaeffer, in a lot of his work, explores, like I said, the, the, the flows of that humanistic thought going back into the centuries through academia, through the arts, through, you know, pop culture and through politics and everything. But I love how he just connects in so many ways this relationship between humanism and communism and totalitarianism and the whole, the lie of communism that is, oh, it's all about human dignity and protecting the working person and protecting the, you know, it's all about the good of the people, the good of the community. We're all share, you know, when in reality it's, it's just a lie and... The idealistic utopians only serve, you know, they serve their purpose until their purpose is done, and then it's just the hardline party folk. And as more and more people today are waking up to the fact that the, the new face of communism doesn't necessarily look like the old faces and forms of communism that our parents and grandparents uh, faced, the people are, are typically conditioned to, to think of it as, and it just seems quite apropos at the moment, especially when all of a sudden we're, we're hearing that uh, you know, Russia and the leader of Russia is eager to expand itself to the former glory of the Soviet Union and, you know, re basically you know, reboot the, the whole Cold War missile crisis narrative, the potential nuclear devastation narratives and, and all that. And so it, it has all these echoes back to, to the fights against communism when in reality what's going on with, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset and all that and, you know, eventually pulling into a one world communistic order, technocratic order. That is the agenda really at play here and not to get into any of the uh, the ins and outs of the question of the hot war aspect, because I think you guys are smart enough to kind of figure out what's what's really going on there. But it does seem pretty increasingly hard to uh, get away from is 
because they're broadcasting it so heavily, is, of course, the whole cyber warfare, cyber attack, cyber false flag stuff that their warning is, is going to kick off potentially into the, you know, neighboring NATO countries and all this stuff. So, you know, we have the surface level, nation against nation, political narratives, war narratives and all that, hearkening back to the war games era you know, oh, what if what if the what if the crazy man launches nukes and we have a nuclear war? You know, and that's just the worst possible thing that everyone wants to avoid. So in order to do that, you know, we got to use whatever tools, economic tools, cyber tools, and just like just like we just got done doing a few weeks ago in Ottawa, <laughs> these same technological, financial, you know, banking tools. Now, instead of being used against truckers and protesters and Canadian citizens, it's, it's more like a, a whole country, ostensibly. Not that I really think that Putin is, is really going to... I don't think he's going to get thrown under the bus. I mean, yeah, he's Hitler today, but we'll see. But the, the economic <laughs> nuclear fallout is ultimately what I think. This is all designed to provide an alternative, an alternative narrative to explain things like out-of-control inflation, you know, soaring energy prices, supply chain issues, just economic collapse, essentially. An engineered collapse to then bring about the system, because the whole system now is so out of control. And of course, it's all about prepping for this, this big green economy, carbon credit, social credit kind of system, as we all know. But again, when you step back and you just Instead of getting caught up in all the politics and all the, you know, the footage and, and, the, and the, you know, all the stuff that's designed to grab hold of people's emotions and, you know, and get them fired up wanting serious action taken, whether it's military or economic tools, you know, we need a world government to come in and keep this from happening, right? So it's the prospect of like, you know, nuclear annihilation or massive casualty war, I think is, is the threat to then we you know we've got to you know take this next step in implementing all all these financial and technological measures and you know security we have not yet had the quote unquote cyber 911 event yet but that you know that could be not far off but when you step out of all, all the you know the the political narratives being provided by the media and and all the talking heads and stuff so what i think is is interesting now is when you know we look at this and there's so much of the so much of the script is, is just recycled from, you know, various decades where the Cold War kind of waxed and waned in terms of its emphasis and seriousness of a threat. But yeah, the, now this whole idea of like, well, we've got to fight godless communism in Southeast Asia or Korea or, or you know, or whatever is, is completely gone. <laughs> Now it's all about going after the oligarchs. You know, essentially, like, they're the evil capitalists who are just tyrannical and, and oppressive. And it's essentially the same type of propaganda that conventional Marxists were using against, you know, capitalism for a long, long time. And now it's kind of the mainstream global mindset, but just with an, a new veneer and a new, yeah, techie, trekkie spin. Communism for trekkies, I guess. But when you step back and look at, like, okay, what are really the ideologies behind the culture and government and society in Russia versus the United States versus China versus, you know, all these different, you know, NATO countries in Europe, all, who are all so at odds over different things and all, it's all so terrible. And yet they're all, at this point, basically equally humanistic. <laughs> you know, and there's really no difference in the core materialistic humanism in any of them, if you're honest. 
and here in the West, you know, and how much of that veneer of the Christian consensus, that, that borrowing of, and we have seen this, uh, and we've continued to see what he talked about in terms of the materialists and the, you know, the, the idealistic Marxists borrowing the language and borrowing the meaning that comes from a belief in God, even though they reject God, and, and just attaching it to their platform, to their, to their worldview, in order to fill that void, in order to like give an appearance for the basis of morality, a foundation for which it ultimately does not have. So it has to it has to fake its virtue until such a time as where that's no longer necessary, and, and the false promises are no longer necessary, and you can just do whatever you want because you're in control. And that is ultimately what I think this whole stage of warfare, asymmetric warfare, you know, which guys like James Giordano talks about at length. Involving not just, you know, cyber attacks and, and hackers and things like this, but, you know, however many dimensions beyond that, getting into all kinds of fun technological brain interface, uh, you know, battlescape brain kind of territory. But in the end, all, the, all these, like, political narratives we're seeing is just, like, one form of humanism posturing against another. And in that sense, it makes so much sense in terms of all these false fronts and false narratives. When you look at, like, okay, what is the what are the people who are at the top of this this hierarchy or that hierarchy? What, what do they believe about human beings? What do they believe about where we come from, why we're here, and what gives us meaning and purpose? Oh, it's, it's all the same? They all agree that we're flying through a giant void on a spherical self-assembling spaceship and we're part of that self-assembling spaceship that has evolved over billions of years and at the end of the day all we are is just constructs of molecules and you know proteins and atoms and electrons and whatever other you know particles but you're all you are is a machine <laughs> that had no designer there's nothing significant about the individual person. There's really no basis for individual human rights or individual human dignity or love or... The, the, all these words are meaningless. I know I've gone off on this rant before, but, you know, when God is taken out of the picture, everything that you're left with is idolatry. All the things that we build, all the things that we learn and study, that becomes the foundation, our, our knowledge. That's, that's essentially what that, you know, that, that quote from New Atlantis just sums up. This is our foundation, and yet it, in the same page, he just, oh yeah, and, but it's all Christian, you know. There's no contradictions going on here. And it should be plain as day to see that this is just, this is just Gnosticism. It's nothing that wasn't even around, really, Jesus' day and before. And now it's amazing how you can kind of look at, you know, the Rosicrucian, what, what that symbol even means. The rose is kind of the, the esoteric symbol for all kinds of Gnostic goddess-related things. And, you know, the rose is basically symbolizes all of the, the occult knowledge, all of the hermeticism and the alchemy and the numerology and astrology. All these things that, you know, somehow gave rise to the, the real sciences of astronomy and chemistry and physics and all these things. All these people that for however many centuries were buying into this idea of learning all the mechanics of the invisible forces in the world and that this is somehow the key to creating a world that we could not otherwise experience. And man becomes his own god, man becomes his own salvation in this communal sense, communist sense. But just like every other example of this same phenomenon of human nature that we've seen in history from the Tower of Babel all the way through to today, it always ends in the same thing. It always ends in some form of tyranny and destruction and devastation and meaninglessness, a society that eventually just falls apart. 
when you have no fixed values, nothing but arbitrary law. Yeah, it's just then the law is God. The state is God. That's what happens when you make man God. You know, and if that's all we really are at the end of the day is a bunch of biological robots who evolved over millions and millions of years and billions of years of cosmic evolution and, and all the rest. And the only foundation for meaning or morality or law is whatever is considered most socially viable for the whole, for the whole, not just the human organism, but the organism of the earth itself. And we're just a part of that larger equation. There's nothing to stop. As Schaefer questioned years ago, like, how far will it go? Well, what's to stop people with this ideology, this humanistic foundation, who've consolidated power over generations and the centralizing of government and industry, the, the public-private partnerships, everything being pulled ever more into a singular, unified, one-world system that, yeah, wants to peer inside of everyone's molecules and have complete biometric surveillance of all your vital signs and how much energy you consume and all the rest. Totalitarianism on a level that we still can barely wrap our, our minds around. And yet we hear guys like Noah Harari and the World Economic Forum and Google and all the, the transhumanists and the futurists and the evolutionists and on and on and on espousing in the open you know, this technocratic, utopian, Marxist ideology, this humanistic religion, the cult of scientism, whatever you want to call it. And for anyone calling themselves a Christian who does buy into this ideology, it is absolutely a heresy. And, and the two cannot coexist. And that's why, at the end of the day, this is all a spiritual battle. It is not political, it is not economic, it is not technological. It is about this, <laughs> the heart of man in relationship to God. And that is what ultimately filters out and affects everything else going on. And we can see this more than ever now. So thank you for watching. Thanks for being patient. It's been a while since my last video. There's a number of reasons for that, but I appreciate all your support and your prayers and sticking with me and being in this fight for the truth and for the light of the gospel in these increasingly confusing and gaslit times that we're living in. We're seeing things play out that in many ways, honestly, shouldn't be that surprising, even though that doesn't make it easy. But it comes back to, yeah, how, how should we then live? What are we putting our faith and our confidence and our trust in? The collective knowledge and abilities and resources and innovations of man, has that really brought us any closer to eradicating sin and injustice and suffering in the world? Uh, I'll give you a sentence that I wish you'd memorize. If there is no absolute by which to judge society, society is absolute. The heart of the humanist thinking is making the individual man and then mankind the center of all things, his own measure of making him autonomous. If we're going to live and escape death, not only death uh, individually in the sense of the judgment of God,
But death in our culture, in our political life, in our present life, we must turn from that humanist way of making man autonomous. And we must put the creator at the center of all things. The greatest of all wickedness is putting any created thing in the place of the creator. And when we turn from this, our feet are turned from the paths of death to the paths of life. Society has been supporting the work of scientists for over 300 years. Here in the Society's library are kept records of their work together with virtually every important scientific document that's been published since modern science began. This book for me is one of the most important, first edition of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. It sits alongside the works of Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Michael Faraday, Francis Crick, Dorothy Hodgkin, Stephen Hawking. As we approach the Society's 350th anniversary in 2010, we have an opportunity to build on the work of these great scientists. The discovery of the electron, the splitting of the atom, the computer, the double helix and the World Wide Web were all the works of fellows of the Society. But the 350th anniversary is an opportunity to look to the future. Isaac Newton famously wrote to Robert Hooke, if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. So whilst we're proud of our heritage, we're committed to supporting the current generation of scientists. It's they who continue to build on this great work, finding solutions for the many problems that we and our planet face today. bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, who hast cast us off? And wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies.